Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. By way of warm-up, Danny, let me start with you. Uh, many sports writers and commentators are listening to the Dallas Cowboys as one of the best teams in the NFL this year. Seeing as that the Redskins did defeat them in their first encounter, does that mean the Redskins is one of the best teams in the NFL? No, that is illogical. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Williams, for you. Um, there have been some uh, people here that are suggesting that Southeastern ought to raise the standards of its dress code. Uh, yes. uh, given that you rarely have matching socks, and then this morning you have none at all, uh, I, tried, I tried to borrow one of Danny's, and he won't give it to me. So well, I'm wondering, if this were to happen, what kind of therapy do you think you would need? Uh, probably electroconvulsive therapy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then Dr. Du, for you, rumor has it that your wife Tara has a 4.0 student average all of her life. Is that true? That is true. So some of us are actually wondering if uh, the rumors are true that she actually is the author of all your books. <laughs> She's at least the whipcracker of all the books. All right. Uh, on a little more serious note, let me hit kind of some rapid fires. Danny, let me start with you. Uh, one of the questions that came in from our students is, why is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary not affiliated with the Baptist Church on the corner of our property? Well, actually, the question should be reversed because we don't affiliate with churches. Churches affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are part of. But I would quickly point out the building that is being built over there right now is the result of us selling them the acreage that they needed for $1. And they're building a $3 million building, and they're going to make that building completely available to us to use for classrooms, for special events, at absolutely no cost at all. So I would say that even though they also align with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, they are a Southern Baptist Convention Church. They have a very good working relationship with them. So I think there's a sense in which we very much are partners in the gospel. Okay, good. So even though there's been a longer history that hasn't always been smooth, I would say the relationship with Wake Forest Baptist Church is better today than it's been in probably 25, 30 years. Good, good. Dr. Williams and Dr. Dew, let me start with you, Sam, on this. Um, someone wrote a question in regard to student giving. Let me just read it. It says, what would you say to the pastor or the church that has seminary students within their membership that do not contribute anything financially to their church? In other words, no money at all, but they do use the benefits of the church. You're an elder in our local church here. How would you reply to that? Uh, well, to adopt a term from our dear president, I think that's rather scumdoggish. Scumdoggish? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I really think that it's important for all of us, not just students, you and I and Dr. Aiken and everybody, uh, to train our hearts by giving uh, regardless of what one makes. I, I think there's more at issue here than just money, and that's the generosity of our hearts. And we're not born generous, so you have to train your heart for generosity. And even if that's only given 25 bucks a, a month, you're training your heart for generosity. Yeah, that's good. And Jamie, you've been a pastor. How, what would you pipe in on that one? Yeah, I guess a, a first caveat would be just simply to say uh, there's probably something understandable that during this season of life 
whoever that student is, it's probably not going to be the moment in their life where they give the most. So, sure, understandably, they're, they're probably working 25 jobs to, to make $15,000 a year. I get that. At the same time, yeah, I would hope that they would still find a way to give something there, even financially, because um, to Sam's point, they're, they're preparing for a lifetime of leadership in the local church, and it's really, really hard to expect your people to give sacrificially if you're not prepared to give when you're in a moment when it really would be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would hope that that, that student or set of students would, would do better than that. Okay. All right, good. Danny, uh, back to you here. This question came in as kind of related to local uh, pastor in the church. It's, I'm not sure that's even worded well, but let me read it as it came to me. It says, if the gospel is free to all, then why do local congregations have to pay their pastors in sharing what is free? Well, I'd say, first of all, local churches don't have to pay their pastors, but they're certainly free to pay their pastors. And I think Paul makes it uh, pretty clear in his letters that it's appropriate for those that do the work of the ministry to be cared for and uh, provided through the work of the ministry. Uh, and so I don't see anything uh, problematic. And I, I would say that uh, they're drawing an a unwarranted conclusion from the freeness of the gospel. Okay, good. Now this, this question, we have two of them that are back-to-back that relate to the question of alcohol. And this comes up frequently at Southeastern uh, in regard to our covenant here. Let me read it. I'll take a first crack at an answer, and then I have a follow-up question that will come back to you. So it says this, following Augustine's maxim that an unjust law is no law at all, should SEBTS students and faculty be required to totally abstain from food and drink that the Bible communicates as a blessing from God? And I would say to this question that it's, it's fundamentally the wrong question. There's no one here at Southeastern that's saying that alcohol consumption is per se wrong, and we've certainly not legislated a law about that. The problem is that I think this question misunderstands that this is a voluntary institution. You, you come here and you volunteer to abide by the rules. So if someone decided to leave because they wanted to have wine or beer or some other form of alcohol, they could. So there's, there's a misunderstanding of that idea that's involved with that. So uh, because we're doing the rapid-fire section on here, all I would say to our student body is that if they wanted to have further conversation, we did a whole casual conversation on this a year ago, mm-hmm. and they could go back and look at that, as well as the dean of students' office has a a written uh, answer to this question already, so someone could come and, and check out my office on that. And I've also written on it, uh, so if you were to go to my website, you may not agree with my argument, but I do point out that we look at this as a wisdom and witness yeah. principle. We don't look at it as a ironclad, here's what the Bible says, as a direct statement on it, but given the context in which we live. I, basically, my view is identical to John Piper's. John Piper says, for the purpose of witness and wisdom in a culture, where so much harm and hurt is the result of alcohol abuse, the wisdom position is to stay away from it. And I think sometimes some of our students miss the fact that there's not a one-to-one correspondence with the world of alcohol in the first century and what we have today with billions of dollars spent to basically seduce you and entice you into that world. And so for us, it is a voluntary institution. If you don't agree with uh, the position that we have, that's fine. You don't have to come here. That's right. And we won't break fellowship. It's just no. not the place for you to be. No. Yeah. All right. So a follow-up question that's related to that says this. We know that all the seminary policy regarding student drinking alcohol, but do professors have to abide by the same standard? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Jimmy, um, in regard to culture, uh, if the Great Commission is of such high importance to the school... Why is so little focus given towards active cultural engagement? 
things like arts such as painting, literature, film, and music? Well, we certainly don't suggest that those types of disciplines aren't important. I think in our case, it's simply a matter of asking the question of what are we put here to do? And we exist as a seminary to serve our local churches. We were brought into existence by our denomination to help train pastors to serve them. So to use an analogy, you know, if you go to a doctor and you need some kind of medical procedure, I certainly, I certainly don't want a dentist taking my tonsils out. I want someone doing that procedure on me that knows how to do that specific procedure. He's specialized, right? So there needs to be a place for specialization. And our specialization, given what we're chartered to do, is to train pastors and missionaries. So that's our primary focus. I would say, though, um, and, and I've said this in recent conversations in a variety of, of venues, that when we look at our institution as a whole, we do have a graduate school, we do have an undergraduate school. And all of our schools together, whether you're talking college or seminary, we are all intending and focusing on fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what we do. But I like to say we go about doing that directly and indirectly. At the graduate level, we train pastors and missionaries, and that's a laser beam focus and always will be our laser beam focus because that's what we're created to do. At the undergraduate level, we still do that directly, and that, that's why we offer pastoral ministries degrees and biblical studies degrees, but we also try to broaden the curriculum there because it's appropriate to broaden the curriculum there at the undergraduate level, and this is why we offer philosophy degrees and history degrees and English degrees and things like that. But even there, I would say that those degrees, those indirect degrees, as I'm calling them in the college, they don't exist just for the sake of doing philosophy doing history. Even there, it's my intention, it's my heartbeat, I think it's our faculty's heartbeat, that even those disciplines are leveraged for the sake of the Great Commission. So everything we do comes back to that because that's why we exist. But that doesn't mean that those other disciplines aren't important. Right. And I would say this, we do have a liberal arts component to what we do in the college, but we are not technically a liberal arts school. That's not who we are. That's not our mandate. That's not our commission. Furthermore, I would also point out we have a faith and culture center that does engage these kind of issues. And also the very fact that uh, the family of Francis Schaeffer deemed that they wanted his papers here. Uh, And, of course, he was someone that taught us how to engage the culture, the arts, the the, the cinema, all of that with a Christian worldview, says something about what they saw in our school. So it is something we do, but it is not the laser beam focus of what we do. Yeah, I think we we don't train people to paint, but we train people how to think about the arts. Yes. And I think that's an important part of that. So. Okay, so we've got, now got a few, still in the rapid-fire section, but some kind of disjointed questions here. There's not really a flow or pattern at this point. So, Sam, uh, that seems to fit you anyway. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on exorcism? That's the question. What are your thoughts on exorcism? <laughs> what did you mean that that kind of seems to fit me? Can you explain that, Dr. Lederbach? <laughs> well, that's why I asked you about exorcism. I... <laughs> uh, you know, it is a topic I've thought about, and... Um, studied uh, a fair amount over the last uh, few decades in my work. Um, I guess the first comment I would have to uh, exorcism and some of the controversies surrounding it is one of the problems we often have in understanding human behavior that may look like that person is demonized, for instance, is uh, that most human behavior is multiply caused. There are multiple determinants. And so one of the difficulties I often have in this conversation is reductionism. We want to reduce things down to the brain or the body or to demons or to just conscious sin or, or Lord knows what. There are a variety of 
factors in the human equation that I really think is important for us to understand if we really want to understand why people do what they do. What's, what's up? Why are they doing this or that? Now, given that, um, the, the ministry of, uh, I don't particularly like that term exorcism, but of, of, say, we call it deliverance ministries these days, uh, very, very clearly uh, we see a, a good deal of in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Um, so I, I don't think we can rule out deliverance ministry, some type of power encounter whereby demons are encountered and cast out. I, 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 think, there, I think I would like to see at least some um, space allowed for that. And yet, another nuance I have with this is you, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, once you get past Acts, and you get into the more didactic portions of the New Testament, where they're teaching us how to do the Christian life and how to do the, do the church and all that stuff, not once are we instructed to do any sort of deliverance ministry, not one time. Certainly, Satan is acknowledged, but in Ephesians 6, when Paul says that we should be aware of the schemes of the devil, we're to put on the whole armor of, of the Lord, uh, what is the armor? How do, how do we do battle? Well, it's faith, it's prayer, it's the Word of God, it's the Gospel, uh, it's the belt of truth. So it looks there to me like the type of spiritual warfare that Paul is calling for is kind of what, what David Pallison calls classical spiritual warfare. And yet, might there be times when somebody is uniquely demonized? And I think possibly. But I think we want to be careful in going there and recognize that, once again, the teaching portions of the New Testament don't give us any instruction in doing that. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. I don't think that uh, that absence of evidence is sufficient to say we can't do it. But Yeah, so back in my days in college, which is a longer time ago than now that I care to admit, but there was, that's when the books by Frank Peretti were very popular in the right, idea of right. demons and um, demon possession. And there was... I was even a part of some scenarios where people were following Frank Peretti's ideas of how to think right, about this right. more than biblical teaching on right, that. Right. I've heard you talk about Second Corinthians as perhaps even being the more specific place where spiritual battle is discussed in the casting down of fortresses and things on there. you have some thoughts there? Uh, well, actually, I think that passage in Second Corinthians 10 where we're to you know, cast down strongholds, that, that's probably talking about worldviews and philosophies okay. and, and those sorts of things. So I, I, I don't think that probably fits real well with that. But, but I do think we have some evidence. For instance, um, in Ephesians, Paul says, don't stay angry or you're going to give the devil a foothold in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't think we need seances and LSD and child abuse to provide a, a gateway for Satan. Mm-hmm. Just stay angry mm-hmm. and he's got entrance into your life. So I, I think, once again, what we want to do is we want to think biblically. It doesn't mean that extra-biblical knowledge, practical experience, that people have done this, and, and many missionaries and some counselors that we can't learn from them, but there's a, a, there's a whole mythology yeah. of, of kind of pyrotechnics and sensationalism that's built around this. And yet, once again, uh, God help us if we ever deny the reality of, of evil and evil beings uh, which are always up to something malicious, malignant in our lives. Okay. Mark, I'd say this so. too. I think we need to recognize Satan is very wise. And so he brings schemes and tactics against us in our Western culture that appeals naturally to the idolatries of our heart and our life, materialism, stuff, sensuality, and so on. You get into a, um, 
two-thirds world context where those things don't even exist, but spirit powers, uh, bondage to ancestral worship and things like that, mm-hmm. Satan applies his tactics to them that fits well to keep them in terror, keep them in sin, keep them in defeat. Mm-hmm. So he's equally adept at doing what he does in a Western context or an Eastern context or even an animist context. And it may be that you find him functioning and operating kind of more like the book of Acts and the Gospels in those areas than here. Why would he not do that when that works very effectively there? Why go to those kind of links here when he gets us so easily by the idols of this world that so dominate our Western way of thinking? Yeah, I think that to just follow up on that, it seems like there's a... It's just good to be reminded that Satan is a living, rational being that's seeking strategically to kill. And he's going to do that in the he's best way. He's been around a long time, so he knows what works really well yeah. in, in, in various different contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I, I asked this question quite frequently with somebody that has some really serious psychiatric symptoms. You know, well, don't you think that's demonic? And my somewhat uh, smart aleck answer to that is often, well, what's not hmm. in terms of human causation? So I think what people are really asking in these instances is, are these people uniquely demonized? Because right now demons are messing with us. That is their point and purpose. That's always happening. So the better question is, are they uniquely demonized such that they're the primary or maybe one of the main significant factors in that particular behavioral manifestation? Um, So. Okay. All right, good. Uh, Danny, for you, here's a, a question, uh, and I just want to kind of set this up by saying we plan on doing a future casual conversation about this with professors who have different points of view. So if you could do this quick, that'd be great. What are your thoughts on the millennial kingdom? Well, a short answer those that know me know that I operate out of a premillennial understanding of eschatology, but I'm very grateful that our school does not have a more narrow confession like some schools do, which I'm not being critical of. They just choose to have a more narrow confessional statement. Dallas Theological Seminary, for example, you've got to be both pre-tribulational and pre-millennial to teach there. Even Trinity Evangelical Divinity School requires all of their faculty to be pre-millennial. Here, that's not the case. So we've got people here that are pre-millennial, amillennial. I don't know that we have anyone post-millennial, but we may. Uh, we have people that are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, Maybe there are a few that are partial rapture, pre-wrath rapture. I hope not, because I don't think that works very well at all. It's not very defensible. (laughs) Having said that, what really matters is that you believe that Jesus is historically, bodily, literally coming again, and that you believe in the reality of heaven and hell, and that Jesus makes the difference. In other words, we apply here, thankfully, a good, healthy theological triage, knowing what's required to be here uh, as a Christian, what is areas where uh, if you really have an agenda here, you might be better served somewhere else. And then here's a third tier issue where these are some details like the nature of the millennium that we can disagree on and yet work equally well and delightfully well with each other, not just here, but even in a local church to extend the Great Commission. So that's where we're coming from on that issue. Yeah, well, that's so important for a healthy kingdom for a, or a healthy institution to be able to make that triage. What's the most important that you can't move on? What are things that, well, we think they're very important and it may not have fellowship together in the same worship service with you, but we still call you brother or sister in Christ. And those, I think nuancing those is crucially important. Absolutely. So, yeah, okay. Um, 
All right, here's a question from the category of too much time in video games and B-rated movies, uh, but we'll go ahead and answer it anyway. Here's the question. If Russia or China should take over America, should we fight back? Uh, so since I'm the ethicist, I'll answer that question by simply saying this would be a question of just war, uh, so you need more details to figure all the justifications, but on the face of it, yeah, if you're invaded, that's typically a reason to have just war on there. So uh, I'd recommend that that person actually take one of our Christian ethics classes here and uh, have a longer discussion on that. So uh, let me move on from that one to Jamie. What do you believe about Christians owning firearms and for personal protection? Yeah, so I own a variety of firearms. I don't mind admitting that. Um, I have several pistols. I have several rifles and shotguns and things like that. Not a whole lot. I don't go bonkers or anything. <laughs> so, wait, wait. so I had to hear. Yeah, yeah that's not bonkers. How many do you actually have? Uh, I don't know. I have two pistols. I have two shotguns and two rifles. Okay. So. I'm, I'm going so to six. his house and get <laughs> in trouble. That's right. But, and actually, I didn't own any weapons whatsoever until I became a pastor. And I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. So here's what I found, though. I found, you know, we lived in a parsonage, and, <laughs> you know, 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, the door, somebody knock on the door, and inevitably, if there was a homeless person or something sketchy in the neighborhood, they always send them to the parsonage. And I thought, thanks a lot, people, you know. Um, but I found myself as a pastor, this is, this is stuff that I wasn't prepared for coming out of seminary. I found myself, when you're dealing with somebody suicidal, in a multiple, multiple occasions, I found myself in these situations where they had weapons and uh, I worried for my life, um, dealing with people that were strung out on crystal meth, or heroin, or crack, and I had to deal with that numerous times, and I was always in very, very, very vulnerable situations. Um, and then other people, like domestic violence, and so there were situations like that that I found myself Students in. Students upset about Students, that's right, that's right, that's yeah. right. Um, so here's what I'd say, though. For me, this is a common sense issue. To me, I, I get frustrated when I hear either side try to make a case from the Scripture. I don't think, I'm not persuaded that either side can successfully make a big case. So for me, it's a common sense issue. I think I have moral responsibilities to protect my wife and my children. And I want to have the best opportunity to do that that I possibly can. So I'm unpersuaded by the pacifist arguments from Scripture that I'm not supposed to have those. So I just, I don't, I don't bother with that. Um, at the same time, I, I have to admit, though, even though I own and I, I think that there's common sense on my side... I, I do have a reservation with what tends to bubble up in our culture sometimes of the machoism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That man is just guns, guns, guns. I, I don't get that. And I think that there's um, not just a, a safety danger there, if we're not careful. I think it can be flat out kooky sometimes too. And, I, and, and we can have, in our culture sometimes, we can have a tendency to take an issue where we stand maybe even rightly on a place. And just take it to some kooky extreme, and so I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to do that. I've I've owned several pistols, and instead of just collecting to the hilt, I don't need that many. I just I'll sell them and get something different if I don't feel like that really serves my purposes. I'm curious. Just a quick answer, Sam. Do you own a gun? No, sir. How about you, Danny? Do you? Someone gave us a rifle that's stuck in a closet somewhere in the house. I don't know where it is. Yeah, that's a, Yeah. <laughs> but I but I live on the campus. Security roams around, <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have a rifle that's old and rusty that someone gave to us. So I have a lot of paintball guns that work, so I guess that's what I'd be pulling out, the paintball guns on there. On there. But if, if, if the Chinese and Russians come and I'm going to his house. I am too. Yeah, I have red paintballs for them. Because, 
All right. Um, Sam, let's go back to you. Do you think um, Christianity has become a fad for the middle-class America? Christianity a fad? Well, you know, if that question were asked uh, 30, 50, 100 years ago, I, I would say probably. Uh, on the other hand, uh, these days I, I, I really think not with respect to Orthodox uh, Christian faith. I think the uh, faddish... Uh, Nominal, uh, mushy middle uh, Christians are fastly uh, fading uh, because of the, um, the the way that the moral issues are playing out in our culture. It's getting pretty clear where one stands. So I, I think it's going to become less and less popular yeah. for us to be Christians. Unfortunately, okay. it's almost more faddish to be atheistic at this point. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Jamie, going back to you, um, here's the question as it was written to me. My church is a part of the SBC, and they say that natural evil is partly because of God's punishment for unrepentant sins. Does that really still happen even after Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins? Uh, well, you know, certainly I, I would like the opportunity to sit down with that church and flesh that out, clarify. What exactly do you mean by that? On the way, if that question represents the view, then I, I think I would have two problems with that. Number one... If natural evil is a result of unrepentant sin, what do you, how do you explain cases where someone who's clearly repentant now suffers from cancer or a, a car crash or anything like that? That doesn't seem to fit. So that, that, to me, that's just an immediate glaring problem that suggests that's false. Uh, moreover, I, I have a real hesitation with us trying to over-principalize things from Scripture. So, for example, we have a case right here where someone committed this sin and we watch some particular suffering follow. Ah, let's draw the principle, when you commit this sin, this suffering follows. Okay, but then what happens when someone commits that sin and then that suffering doesn't follow? So, I, I, again, this over-principalizing, trying to always have a principle that we can apply universally. I think the fact of the matter of it is when it comes to evil, and I just said this to one of my classes yesterday, I think biblically speaking we can give really good answers to the, the big capital W-Y question. Why is evil here? Sin. I think we have an extremely difficult time giving answers to the little W-Y question. And why little W, I mean not just general uh, sin and suffering in general, I mean my own specific circumstance and situation. I would be extremely reluctant to apply some rough and ready generalized answer to those types of questions. Okay. All right, good. Let me move to now a section where I want all of us to give a really quick answer to. I've got about five questions here. So if you can, move through these pretty quickly, and we'll just each give a, a quick response. The first one is this. Uh, what is one word of advice you would give to someone who just stepped into their first position on a church staff? Danny, let me start with you on that. Uh, preach the word and love the people. Uh, and unless it's a issue of... Christian orthodoxy and evangelical integrity, uh, don't uh, make that a hill upon which to die. Try to have the wisdom to know this is something I'm willing to spill my blood for. In fact, I have to spill my blood for it. This is something I'd like to change, but change can come in time. Okay. Very good. Sam? Do I get as many words as he <laughs> uh, uh I would say uh, be a learner. Uh, be humble and learn the people. Learn that culture, learn that church, learn your community. Um, it's pretty easy when we've been taught and when we are learned and have degrees to, even though you don't think of it, to kind of sort of be a, a know-it-all. And God help us, especially me, with that. Okay. You know? Jim? Yeah, just ditto, but maybe adding one other layer to that. 
patiently, patiently learn your context. Think about it. What we do here is we spend all this time thinking about how we would contextualize the gospel if we move to Thailand or Taiwan or something like that. And then we move into some little squeaky hinge Baptist church somewhere and we utterly fail to contextualize the gospel Mm -hmm. to that context because we know what we're doing and that's bonehead and you will... (laughs) <laughs> you will hurt yourself and everybody else if you do that. Okay, good. My, my quick thought was to be aggressive on three things, personal devotions, personal evangelism, and dating your spouse. And if that's, but that's a recipe for life, not just necessarily that context on there. Okay, here's second question. We'll reverse order of this and we'll start with you, Jamie. What do you wish you had known in your 20s? You're not that far removed from that, like the rest of us over here. Uh, my body feels like it's a, pretty far removed from that, my knee especially, but... Um, I think I, would, I wish I'd have known that the learning process is going to be continuing even now. So I'm 37 and I'm, I hold positions now of rather significant uh, importance, more than I ever thought I would. And um, even still, I in no sense feel like I have arrived at what God is ultimately crafting me, forming me to do. And, and even though I have this hefty job in front of me and on me now, in many ways I still feel like my job is to continue learning and preparing and uh so learning the habits of yeah being just a learner. just settling in on okay. to the the trajectory of preparation and learning okay sam you're in your later 50s now so what would you oh, say in your 20s really if you could... old I, mean, uh, I just made 60 dear brother <laughs> oh that's right yeah i'm sorry very yeah. old in fact i was there my memory's going I'm yeah, just... yeah 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 <laughs> uh well um I don't remember much from my 20s. Um, <laughs> Are you stoned? Uh, yeah, explain why you don't remember your 20s. <laughs> no, let's not. The conversation <laughs> would have to get really casual then. But yeah. We don't want to go there. Yeah. Uh, uh, honestly, though, and kind of related to this, I really wish I would have known, this may sound odd, how bad I was. Because I was raised in a Christian home. And I heard the gospel all the time. And I was raised in good churches and good parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought I was a really a pretty good person, pretty smart, pretty kind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But thank God that through my utter sinfulness, he taught me how bad I was. And therefore, it became really obvious I needed a Savior. So I wish I'd have known. Seen that sooner, huh? I wish I'd have seen that sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Danny? Uh, one, I wish I had known that there's some things you can only learn by living life. And even though you think you know a lot at different stages, the older you get, the more you realize I really don't know much at all. The other thing is uh, it's one thing to be right. It's another thing to be right and communicate that in the right way. And I think many of us that stand on the authority of God's Word and believe that it to be true can sometimes speak truth, but we speak truth not in love. And I think Ephesians 4.15 is so important in life that you speak the truth in love. And I wish I'd known that because I think there were times, and there's still times, when what I say is probably true, but because I don't say it in a loving, gracious, humble, winsome way, people don't hear it. And the goal, of course, is for them to hear the gospel. And so it does matter how you say things. Yeah, good. Yeah, my thoughts for myself on this question was if uh, the one thing I constantly hear myself saying, if I could go back, what would I do? And I would go back and I'd go through our History of Ideas program. Mm. I'd find myself at 50 recognizing that, that mm. massive deficit that now that I'm teaching in that program, mm-hmm. if I had that in my 20s, what an unbelievable program that would be for the mm-hmm. kind of position I have now. So, mm-hmm. um, Okay, so Sam, let me start with you. 
did you think you would be where you are when you were in seminary? So you actually didn't go to seminary. So when you were uh, in graduate school? Well, I never thought I would be in a seminary in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, even arriving here, I think Dr. Patterson was experiencing a psychotic episode when he <laughs> hired me. And, um, but... Uh, uh, so what's the question again? <laughs> already, already yeah. Penelope is beginning to say. So probably in. for you, would probably the better way to ask this, when you were in graduate school, could you ever imagine you would be here, or where did you might picture you would be? Oh, I, 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 yeah, that, that, that I would have been in a Southern Baptist seminary uh, teaching would have been um, beyond imagination, mine and everybody else's that knew me back then. And so you, you were probably thinking private practice as a psychologist? Uh, private practice as a psychologist and um, not even a religious or Christian person at all yeah. at that point. Okay. So, Jamie, yeah. what about you? When you know, as a teenager, I, this is kind of weird and I don't know what it means, but um, as a teenager, I could never imagine my life past 18 years old. Hmm. I just, I, everybody else had dreams and hopes and I, I couldn't even imagine myself <clears throat> being 19. I came to Christ at 18. And, um, and I always say, man, if I hadn't come to Christ when I did, I would either be dead right now or I'd be in jail. I thought occasionally about joining the military or being an auto mechanic or something like that. I'm not an academic by nature. So this is the last thing on earth and the last place on earth I ever thought I'd be or be doing. Um, so no, this completely caught me off guard and continues to catch me off guard. What about you, Danny? Well, I was amazed that the Lord called me into ministry on a mission trip in Arizona. Um, and I didn't even know seminaries existed. So I did what many folks do. I went to my pastor and said, what do you do? Uh, because I felt God had called me into ministry. And he said, go to seminary or go to a Bible college and then go to seminary, which is what I did. I always thought I'd be a pastor. And I was working toward being a pastor. And I did pursue a Ph.D., Mark, because during the conservative resurgence, there were very few pastors on the conservative side that had PhDs. It seemed like all the PhDs were the moderates and the liberals. And I was convinced that you could have a PhD and still believe the Bible. I just said, I, I, if the Bible is true, then you can go to the farthest extent in terms of an academic degree and still believe the Bible. So my goal with several others was to be a, uh, have a, be a pastor who had a PhD. But in the process of working toward that, I was invited to teach adjunctively at a school, then invited to come on full-time, and then the Lord directed my life to where it is today. But, no, I had no vision of this at all. Interesting. I remember reading a book by um, Brother Andrew called God's Smuggler. That was very formative of me in my, in my years. And so my, my expectation was that I would be smuggling Bibles into communist countries and actually uh, was involved in missions in, uh, behind the Iron Curtain when it was still there. Um, it was either that or I thought I'd be teaching at a... Uh, Secular institution doing evangelism and discipleship. And uh, so, interesting how our lives move on that. All right, here's a quick one. Um, what are you reading besides your Bible right now? Jamie? Uh, so, I drive my wife nuts because I'm not, I'm not a guy that sits down with one book and one book only and I read it until I get to the end of it. I normally, if I'm reading something else, I'm, I have my, it's either 15 different books at one time or nothing at all. So, right now I have my nose and probably... Uh, three or four different metaphysics and philosophy of mind books because I'm doing some new preps there and uh, working on some writing projects relating to postmodernism and also 
um, life after death and things like that. So a wide variety of philosophy of religion and epistemology texts at this moment. Sam, I heard you once say something that was very helpful for me, and this might help some of our students, that, that books are your tools of your trade. So like a carpenter picks up a screwdriver or a hammer, uses them for when he needs them and sets them back down. Uh, so I know you're similar to Jamie. You have your mind in lots of books all the time. Are you reading anything particular right now that's catching your attention? Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, I... I um well into uh, Sam James' uh, biography. Uh, I was so uh, um, uh, impressed and, and blessed by his, uh, uh, his interview here. And I'm reading um, The Doctrine of the Word of God by uh, John Frame and Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology because I want to catch up on some stuff regarding um, the doctrine of Scripture and sufficiency and necessity and authority and some of these things I'm trying to work with and maybe working on an article there. And uh, then I'm also reading um, about, a lot about anxiety and stress. And so I'm reading a kind of a popular level book that's wonderful called Nerve by a guy named Taylor Clark. It's about uh, anxiety, stress, high pressure situations, and why do some people fold and some people flourish. And, uh, and some other things on anxiety. Okay. Danny? I'm teaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights in our church, so I'm reading every week between 10 and 12 commentaries on Revelation. I'm also reading uh, the new biography by Thomas Kidd on George Whitfield. Uh, I, too, am reading Sam James's book because of last week. I'm about three-fourths of the way through, and it's, it's wonderful. It wonderful. It's just yeah. been so encouraging and uh, just such a blessing. Um, I have, uh, in uh, uh, recent days, read a book by Mark Knoll where he's sort of tells his story of how he became a world Christian, moving out of very conservative evangelical fundamentalism in the North to seeing global Christianity. It was very insightful from a very brilliant historian of how this worked in his own particular uh, life. Uh, David Platt just came out with a brand new book uh, called Counterculture, where he challenges this younger generation. We can't sit on the sidelines on certain moral ethical issues. They're some that we naturally gravitate to and are happy to wave the banner. There are others that, for whatever reason, like homosexuality and abortion, his generation seems to have been wanting to kind of, yeah, well, he's back and he says we can't do that. They're all ultimately gospel issues. So I've got that one on the desk that I'm reading as well. Yeah, I've actually had a, I had a sneak peek at David's book, and it's a fabulous book. It, it's really good stuff. For me, I, I always have a, a fiction book by my bedside table because if I start reading stuff that's related to my job at night, I stay up all night and my mind starts rolling. So I've been reading J.R.R. Tolkien books for the last 20 years at bedtime probably, just keep rolling through those on there. Mind candy-wise, I would probably say I'm reading uh, Desiring and Imagining the Kingdom by Jamie, James Smith, Jamie K.A. Smith. That stuff's been very good for me. All right, let's move into uh, some other areas here. Our time fleets when we're on these kind of things. Let's, there's a couple questions that came for kingdom diversity kinds of things. So, Danny, let me read this question for you here, and this might help some of our female students. It says, as a female student at Southeastern, I've noticed that the majority of professors are male, even though a large portion of the student body is female. How close is Southeastern to being a campus comprised of the 20% culture diversity of faculty, staff, students, and 35% female? What's being done on the administrative level to think about that? Well, I think we still have a ways to go, but we are tracking in the right direction. And of course, part of getting there is consciously working to get there. So we are working in terms of recruitment for students. We are on the lookout continually, uh, and I'm always looking for uh, ethnic diversity with respect to uh, uh, faculty uh, as well as women. Now, I think we need to be clear. 
Southeastern is a school that affirms the Danvers Statement of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So we are a school that is committed to complementarianism, which means that we believe God calls men to the leadership assignment both in the home and in the church. We are not a church, but we are a servant to the church. So there's a sense in which what we do is always going to have to be uh, in concert with that and even somewhat reflective of that. Do I think that we have some uh, ability to be somewhat more flexible? Yes, but widely flexible? No, that's not who we are and that's not what, at least while I'm here and you guys are here, we're, we're going to become. But I do think there are a lot of things we could see uh, our women be involved in and so we're always open to talking hearing and and I don't mind pushing the envelope as far as the Bible will allow us to push the envelope but I'm not going to push beyond that so we're working toward it we have now I think Mark probably what Jimmy 25% of our total enrollment is already female yeah I think that's right and we've seen a doubling of our ethnic minorities that was it was low so it's still not where it even needs to be uh, in terms of long term but to have it double over the last couple of years is significant. If we can keep working toward that, we'll get to where we'd like to see us uh, sooner than later. But as long as I'm here, we're going to push in that direction. And, and Mark, I'd just add a little bit of historical perspective. So um, I've been here since 2000 as a student, and even before, mm-hmm. hanging out in the community for about four years before then. Mm-hmm. And when I compare where Southeastern was back then with where we are right now, even just the progress we've made in the last couple of years, it's from a historical perspective deeply encouraging to me. Uh, It's kind of like watching a child grow. You don't see it every day. If all you see is the week to week, month to month, maybe even year to year here at Southeastern, it will be hard to see the growth. But it's like taking a picture of your child and then four years later looking back at it and say, oh my gosh, look at how much we've done. And so as I I have these little mental snapshots of where we were even five years ago, ten years ago, I am deeply encouraged with the progress we've made. And we've made that progress by being very, very intentional about these types of things. And so I, I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm very encouraged. Okay, good. We have had uh, and do have uh, female faculty members and ladies that have been and teach and professors here and adjunctively and in the college and in the seminary. So, uh, you know, in, in some ways the ceiling has already been broken through, but, you know, I, I think like Dr. Aiken said, there's a lot of wisdom that comes into this. There's a lot of... And I think a lot of the students and and staff might be happy or might be important for them to know that, as Danny kind of alluded to, we actually have four confessional statements that guide how we hire faculty, and one of those being the Danvers Statement. And so if students or folks want to get a sense of that, look that up online, Danvers, D-A-N-V-E-R-S, Statement on Biblical Manhood or Womanhood on that. It would be a good place to get some thoughts on that. Okay, um, here's a question that's somewhat related to Kingdom Diversity. It says, if it seems that the Kingdom Diversity Initiative is helpful... Let me paraphrase the the following question here. What are we doing to help our students who are in the majority culture? So that would primarily mean white students and probably also male. um, To think about how our culture has shaped the diversity question so that we're more sensitive not only to be thinking about how we're hiring, but how we even talk about social issues and cultural issues related to that. What are things that we're doing on our campus in this light? Well, I would just say again, we're being very, very intentional about having the conversations. And if you'd have told me three years ago that having intentional conversations was going to make an impact, I'd have said, eh, whatever. But in fact, having had these conversations, I think we can see that it actually is. We desperately need, as, as evangelical white believers, to hear and listen 
well from people around us that see this differently. Um, we, it's not that we want to kowtow to the culture, but at the same time, the culture sometimes does help us see that we've missed something. Take, take uh, the civil rights movement or take, take slavery. Here's, here are examples where maybe we've stood maybe not either, either on the wrong side or not aggressive enough on the right side. And it's taking conversations with culture to really help us see that a little bit more. And, we go, and once we see it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, of course, we need to do this differently. So, so part of this is just having the kinds of conversations and being very intentional to, to build the relationships that, that we are building right now. So, for example, every time we have a minority come preach in, in the pulpit here, there's one of us in the cabinet that's taking that person to lunch and building relationships and thinking through how we can extend this relationship even more and how they can help speak into our life and we can partner with them to equip. So I think, again, that just that intentionality is going to pay some pretty big kingdom dividends for us. Yeah, and I think what also happens is whenever you're in the majority culture, the culture that's been dominant in a place or in a time, the, the change is always hardest for you to, right. to begin to see from a different perspective. And I think, yeah. like you're saying, we're, when we're having these conversations, we're working hard to listen yeah. and then to put implementing, you know, the fact that we're having more minorities on in the pulpit, for example, mm-hmm. is very intentional. And you've done an ex- exceptional job on that because we're trying to train our hearts in a new direction. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's been uh, happening there is we've asked our students, and I hope our students understand, talk to us. Many of the... Um, uh, in particular, African-American uh, brothers that we've had in chapel over the last several years. Uh, not many of that, but to be fair, a number of them. I knew a lot of them because I've been working personally in this kind of way for a long time. But uh, I've had new men that I've made relationships with that was a result of our students saying, you need to have this brother come preach in chapel. We need to have this brother on campus. This guy would be a real blessing to us. And I trust them. And I have to say to this point in time, I haven't been disappointed one time. Our students, I think, pick up really well who we are, what our identity is, and that these are men that can come in and speak to us and challenge us where we are, but also push us to where we need to go. And so that's been just a great blessing of the fact that I think our administration, our faculty, we, we know that we're here to teach. But we recognize we can also learn, and sometimes we learn really well from the input that we get from our students. Yeah, good. All right, let me switch gears a little bit to the, the conversation in regard to the Great Commission. Here's a question, Danny, that perhaps you can take on. Is there a reason why SCBTS seems to talk about the Great Commission with singular focus of international missions and church planning while ignoring the more ordinary lives of farmers, bankers, mothers who are also fulfilling the Great Commission? Well, I don't be defensive, but I would argue that that's not accurate. And we're also very, very active in North American church planning. We've also begun to emphasize really strongly in the last several years church revitalization where we recognize that there are churches that are on the verge of dying and uh, we don't want to see that happen. And so we're encouraging our students to pray about where is it that God might send you given your unique gifts, your unique abilities, your passion in your heart. And do I think that that can happen and should happen and will happen in a variety of contexts, including urban and rural? Absolutely. Some of the men uh, and women who come here are particularly gifted and uh, inclined to work well in rural settings. Praise God. You go back there and you build a great commission church in that rural 
farm uh, setting. That needs to happen and it needs to be reclaimed. Others are urban by, by their very nature of who they are. Great. There are places all over America where churches need to be planted. Churches need to be revitalized. Uh, what we call legacy churches need to be continued on, but also need to make sure they keep that Great Commission vision in place. And again, the Great Commission is found both in Matthew 28 and Acts 1. And Acts 1 says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So if they're hearing from us that only international missions constitutes the fulfillment of the Great Commission, then either they're not hearing well or we're not communicating well. And so I want to be clear. It involves your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, but it also includes the uttermost parts of the earth. My experience has been that um, we, by default, focus on where we live. And that's why, again, uh, and my son, one of them is having an apoplectic seizure today about what's happening in their state convention, and I'll just leave that there. But he is bringing to their attention, and this is a fact, for every dollar that goes in a Southern Baptist offering plate across the board, two to three cents on that dollar ever leaves the boundaries of North America. The, the majority of it stays right there in that local church. The rest of it, the majority of it stays in that state, and then the rest of it stays in North America. So I'm not going to apologize for saying, brothers and sisters, uh, what we're saying, we love the nations, is not matching up with our pocketbook. There's a hypocrisy there. So I guess the reason that gets hammered is because that is what is being neglected. Hey, here's the facts. David Platt has stepped into a situation where we're now down to about 4,400 missionaries. We're not at 5,000. We're not at 5,500. We're not moving toward 6,000. And they're struggling to pay and meet the needs of that 4,300. They're selling off assets just to make annual budget. And we have all of this, uh, all of these financial resources. And again, Two to three cents on the dollar that you put in an offering plate ever leaves North America? Are you kidding me? That, that, that is embarrassing. And I think it's sinful. And I believe God's going to hold us accountable. Okay. Good. Good. All right. We, we've got about eight minutes left. So let me, let me throw out a couple of questions. That, uh, we had a whole category of ethics questions. And I've kind of neglected these because I'm really wanting to hear from you guys on these. Let me throw out these in a category here, they have to do with legislating morality. The first question is, is really basically that. Is, is it ever okay to legislate morality? And let me just kind of quickly say to that, of, of course it is. Um, we do. Everything that you do is a form of legislating morality. The reason you can't shoot somebody is because somebody's legislating against murder. The reason you can't steal is because there's legislation against stealing. The reason why you stop at a stop sign is because there's a legislation of morality. They would be immoral to run the stop sign because you could kill somebody. So that's a, it's really kind of a silly question. But it's, I'm not actually picking on the questioner. It's a silly question of the culture. The culture is asking that question when, of course, everything we do is a form of legislation and morality. So we have to kind of get over that question and then ask maybe perhaps what are the right boundaries of what we can legislate within culture. Um, so some more specifics then that we put out there were things regarding same-sex marriage, marijuana, some of these more politically charged pieces right now. And, and I would say to these issues that, that we are actors that are not isolated by ourselves. So the second half of this question was, what about things that are so-called victimless crimes, like same-sex marriage or, or growing pot and selling it recreationally? And I would say even there, we've, we've completely miscategorized it. There is no such thing as a victimless crime. There is no such thing as an action that doesn't have social ramifications. 
if you have to change legislation, then you're paying senators and congressmen dollars that you put in your taxes. So it is affecting you, even if you don't see that it's, it's harmful. And then the question of whether something is harmful or not, who gets to determine whether something's harmful or not? If you adopt a child in a same-sex home, are we saying that that's not harmful or that it is harmful? Who gets to make that decision on that? So I think in those categories and regarding legislation of morality, I think we have to kind of have our eyes wide open. God's placed us in the culture to be actors that try to work for the preservation of culture, for the expansion of the gospel. And when we surrender the ground legislation and just kind of say, I, these are non-victim crimes, I think we're really seeing things, the world askew. Anybody want to jump on that? God has not told us to uh, check our theological mind at the door. Right. We bring our convictions to uh, our activity in the culture, and there's every good reason for us to do that. And just for me personally, I just don't know how I personally could ever endorse, affirm, or support something that the Bible says is sinful. I don't know how you do that. So if the Bible says something is sinful, it does so for very good reasons. And therefore, the loving thing for me to do is to try to encourage that kind of worldview, not capitulate to it. Well, it's not really a big deal. Personally, I'm over here, but uh, uh, culturally I'm here. Well, that's the argument I have from some friends that say I am pro-choice, pro-life. So what did you say? I'm pro-choice, pro-life. Personally... I would not take the life of a child in the womb of its mother. But I'm pro-choice in that I think others should have the right to do that very thing. Well, that doesn't work. I, I don't find that to be, first of all, it's inconsistent. And I think it's actually, to be honest, cowardice. It is. It'd be the same way to say, well, personally, I'm not going to get involved in same-sex marriage or homosexual activity or uh, sexual activity outside of marriage. But I'm completely fine with everybody else doing that. That's not the loving thing to do. Well, I think in addition, I think it's a misunderstanding of the purpose of law. Law has three purposes that we get from time immemorial. Law is meant to help people see that they're breaking the law, and so they need Christ. It works as a tutor. Law also works to restrain the sin of individuals and culture. So if we just give up on the laws, we've kind of removed the passive way the gospel is preached through the government, that when people see, hey, we don't think it's good to do this, that it's actually communicating that if you go and do this, that something's wrong with that. And then thirdly, for those who are believers, it does actually help to legislate our hearts towards the things of God. And so I think it's a misunderstanding of law to kind of go after these things. So let me put it, uh, this will be the kind of, the, we only have time for this as the kind of last heavy question. Then I've got two quick ones for you, Danny, to finish up our time. But let's say that you were, uh, and let me get a quick answer in a minute from you guys on this one. You have a, uh, a, a niece or a nephew who is practicing a homosexual lifestyle and they go to a state like New York and decide they're going to get married and they invite you, do you go? I I could not because I would view that ceremony as a celebration of something that I'm morally and and biblically opposed to. And so it would be hypocritical for me to do that and disingenuous. And I would really be dishonoring them by going because I'd be sitting there thinking, this is wrong. I don't, I don't like this. I don't, this is wrong. God isn't for this. So I'm not sure why they would want me there under those conditions, to tell you the truth. Um, on the other hand, I uh, would have them over for dinner. Uh, I would hope to befriend them. Uh, I would uh, treat them as fellow image bearers of an incredible God just like I am and uh, hope that I can have a relationship with them wherein 
somehow they might see, sense something of Christ. But uh, I, I think when it comes to a, a, a marriage, it's, it's a celebration. It's, it's a ritual intended to memorialize and celebrate two people's, uh, in our terms, husband and wife, a love for one another. Okay. Jamie? I would say let everything we do be couched with gentleness and kindness and love and respect and all of those things. Having said that, if I could quote my, uh, my doctoral mentor, Bruce Little, there are some things we just have to put our big boy pants on for. In other words, there, there are just some lumps we have to be willing to take for the gospel. And so I think Sam mentions some of the real problems and challenges of going and doing that. However, having said that, again, making sure that whatever, however I interact with them, it's not in a condemning way. It's very gracious and kind. And then I would absolutely, most definitely look for some way to demonstrate my love and continued friendship with them in that. Otherwise, I'm cutting off the opportunity for the gospel. And that was part of the question here, is that if you're trying to salvage the relationship, yeah. how do you think And there's wisdom that? that. You have to strive for that. And yeah. I'm not sure I know exactly the, the answers, but those would be some general guidelines that I would, I would work with. Yeah. I have nothing to add. Yeah, and I, I would simply say the same thing I would say. I, for example, if, if a believer is marrying a non-believer, in that scenario, they're under the rubric of husband and wife, male and female. So while I would be opposed to the marriage because they're breaking the principle of, of Christians marrying Christians, in that case, it's not flipping nature upside down altogether. So I would probably still refuse to go to that wedding. But what I would say to them is that once you are married, you're under God as male and female. And so I'll do everything to support that wedding. But in a, in a gay marriage, well... There's really no such thing. There's no marriage. What you have is people proposing to be united together for life, but it, it's not a marriage because marriage is male and female by definition. And so in that sense, I couldn't go for, for both reasons, is that it's, it's flipping nature upside down. And in addition, I wouldn't be pledging that I would support this the rest of, of their lives. And so I think that's an important thing. That's a big conversation. We'll have to have a casual conversation on that one too. On that. So, Danny, let me ask you just here, uh, give a minute or two. We don't have a lot of time. We're right at 11, but... What would you say if you could encapsulate your 20-year vision for Southeastern or 10-year vision? Yeah, What's the long term? I'll be here 20 there? years from okay. now. Um, my goal is to see, as I've said many times, this school uh, look like the church in heaven. That it would be a very uh, racially, ethnically, and culturally diverse people that sees itself as one big family. So much so that we don't even really have to talk about it anymore. It's just the natural ebb and flow of who we are and what we've become. Uh, I see us still being extremely passionate for the nations. Uh, I wish I could believe that 10 years from now, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would have uh, access to the gospel. I hope that happens, but until it does... That's going to be a priority around here and something we continually look to and something we continually emphasize, work for, sacrifice for. Uh, I see us still being a very healthy confessional school. I don't see us jettisoning any of the four confessions that we operate under. The Danvers Statement in particular helps guide us on gender issues. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy helps us understand how crucially foundational that is. And who would have ever dreamed that the issue of inerrancy is already coming back around among professing evangelicals. And so uh, even if others begin to capitulate, we're not going to. We're going to hopefully be a healthy, happy, confessional institution that is not known for what it's against, 
but known for what it affirms and what it believes. And um, I also hope that uh, 10 years from now, uh, we don't have 3,200 students, but we have 5,000 plus students. In fact, I'm quite sure we'll get there, maybe not all here, but a lot here. And what we're able to do now through uh, God's gift of technology to touch not just our nation, but the nations uh, with the southeastern DNA, which I'm very thankful for uh, because I think it's something that's healthy and biblically uh, faithful. We've, uh, just for the folks who are listening, we had probably 30 more questions that we just simply ran out of time for, and that's kind of the nature of the beast here. So I, I do think there's one last question that most of the faculty and staff and student body has been wondering, is, and that is, uh, do you know when we can expect a Danny Aiken bobblehead? Uh, well, if it ever comes to pass, it will be after my death. <laughs> It will not occur in my lifetime, and uh, if it does, those guilty of perpetuating such evil will be dealt with quickly and swiftly. I'll say, so for those of you in the student services division that heard that, please stop production. Uh, All right. Uh, Many of you who did have some questions, if you want to have a conversation with any of us in particular about the ones we didn't answer, we'd be delighted to do so. And that's our disposition is we really do want to do what Danny said. We'd love to entertain your questions, and we apologize for not being able to get to more of them here on that. Let me me, uh, pray for us, and we'll dismiss our time. Father, we're grateful for your kindness that has drawn us to repentance. Lord, we also recognize that as fallen sinners, even on some of the opinions we've given today, there's great chance that we've been in error somewhere. And so we ask your forgiveness and your grace on that. We pray that you'd help us to be the kind of people who are persistently, aggressively, and constantly working to become more like you. And in the places where we fall short, both individually and as an institution, you would guide us, give us your wisdom, and help us to become more like you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.